And so we've been journeying through what would it look like for us to have a heart that would be after the heart of Jesus. We're right in the middle. We, I said we'd kind of start moving a little bit more quickly in these last few weeks. We finished Samuel, the first book of Samuel. And where we're left today is that, remember last week we looked, that David had spared King Saul's life. And that David had such conviction on him, even when he cut off the robe of David. And we talked a lot a last week about not taking corners, not cutting corners, but allowing the sovereignty of God and the providence of God to rule and reign in our lives and that we would surrender all to him and let him lead our lives rather than us taking our lives into our own hands to control them. So there's been quite a bit that's transpired from uh, that chapter, chapter 24, all the way to 2 Samuel chapter 5. So I'll kind of overview what's happened. What, what has happened is if in the last few chapters of Samuel, Samuel has passed away. Uh, the, the nation of Israel is left without a prophet, one to declare to the people of God the words of God. And, and then in the last chapter of 1 Samuel, King Saul is finally killed. And his son, Jonathan, David's closest friend, is killed in battle. So there's this period that we see here that the nation of Israel is without a king. And then in chapters 1, 2, and 3, finally the northern kingdom comes to David and says to David, we want you to be king. And so the northern kingdom, not the totality of Israel, anoints David to be king. But remember the prophecy from Saul, from Samuel to David that day in the pasture was you were going to be king over all of God's people, all of Israel. And we just read, it took seven and a half years for the fulfillment of that prophecy to come true. The, those first seven years that David was the king, he had not fulfilled the prophecy that Samuel had spoken over to him. And again, we've talked about this. What does it look like for us in our lives to have patience? Just think about that for a moment. It's like this carrot is being dangled right out in front of King David. But yet King David believes in the truth and the sovereignty of God and says, I will not take anything into my hands. I'll let the word of God and the truth of God run my life for me. Which is so counter to how I live my life a lot of times, how you live your life, and for sure, how the Israelites live their lives. Remember, they're in this mess of having King Saul over them because they wanted a king. And if you remember all the way back in the beginning of 1 Samuel, God said through Samuel, you really don't want a king. That's not what you want. I am to be your king. And the people of Israel came back to Samuel and said, no, no, we want a king. I wonder how often human wisdom tries to trump the wisdom of God. But God knows what's best for our lives. God knew what was best for the Israelites. And God said to them, you do not want a king. And from the moment they placed Saul as their king, they experienced tragedy upon tragedy upon tragedy. Because why? 
human wisdom said we need a king. God's wisdom said you don't need a king. Human wisdom said, hey, let's take things into our own hands. And three things stick out when I look at my life and I look at the life of Israel in this passage. And I'll get to how do we redeem those things. The three things are, remember, human wickedness. Human wickedness said we needed a king. Human wickedness said we're going to do whatever it takes to put him as king. And then remember the human wickedness that came into the heart of Saul. He became a wicked man once he found out that David was going to be the king. He tried to murder him, tried to kill him. Human wickedness. Rather than Saul trusting in the providence and sovereignty of God. See, Saul knew that David was going to be the king. Samuel had already come and told him that, but the heart became wicked. Which led to human foolishness. Okay, well, if God, you're going to make him king, then I'm going to do everything in my power not to make him king. I'm going to try to set these people up. And even after King Saul dies, there's another man that comes into place and he rises to power and his wickedness and his foolishness says, I'm going to be the king. Abner is his name. And the Israelites experienced defeat after defeat at the hands of the Philistines. Which always will point back to when we take things into our own hands, it will reveal our own weaknesses do we believe that god is sovereign and in control and all-powerful all-powerful he holds everything in his hand god had a plan for the nation of israel remember he had made that declaration way back to abraham remember he takes abraham out to the sky and says look up at the skies through you abraham I'm going to bless a nation, and they're going to be all-powerful. And you see that throughout the Old Testament up until this point, that God remains true to his promises. And yet I wonder for us, and I wonder for the Israelites, because of a lack of patience, do we not take things into our own hands? Well, God, you said this, But life today looks like this, so I don't know how this is ever going to equal to that. And so what happens is the, the serpent, the enemy comes in, and he begins to allow us to have small victories that look like we're getting to this, but it's just a distraction to what God really has for us. That's what happened with the nation of Israel. Because there's moments in the life of Saul with the people of God that there looked like there was small victories. But in the end, it always led to destruction. And then remember what God said to Samuel. Hey, I've got a plan to redeem it all. Basically, what God was saying to Samuel was, don't worry about the chaos Because it's not chaotic to me because I'm sovereign in control. I have a king for myself. That was what he said about David. I've set aside a king that will bring it all to pass what I desire for this nation. And finally, 
after the death of Samuel, after the death of Saul, after the death of Jonathan, the people of God finally come to their senses. They finally come, they finally recognize that God is sovereign and in control of all things. And that's where we're at in this passage in 2 Samuel chapter 5. But I must ask this question to us this morning. Have you come to your senses? Do you know you need a king? It reminds me of the story in Luke chapter 15, the prodigal son. Remember the prodigal son, he was a wicked man, he was a foolish man, and he was a weak man, yet he thought he had way more wisdom than he had. He thought he had way more goodness than he had, and he thought he had way more strength than he had. And he went to his dad and said, hey, give me all that's mine. Give me my inheritance. Because I know what's best for me. i got a plan for my life. And my plan for my life isn't to serve you, it's to go and go out. And be my own man. And if you remember the story goes. That the boy goes and he squanders all that he had on worthless living is what the word of God says. So much so that he found himself sitting in a pig pen eating what the pigs ate. But yet there's this one little phrase that changed everything for him. It says this in the passage. He came to his senses. He woke up. He finally realized, man, life isn't working the way I'd hope it would work. I don't know if you're there this morning. Life isn't what I'd hoped it to be. And you start looking around and you start looking at yourselves and how you you and I have taken all these things into our lives so that we'd have the lives that we went and we leave ourselves even more empty and lonely and desperate, and we must come to our senses. And that's what happened here in 2 Samuel chapter 5. It says this, and we're going to look at three things that the people of God came to their, their senses, and it must be true of us this morning. And then the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron, and said, behold, you are bone and flesh. You see, the first thing that we see that the people did in their disparity, in their uh, desperation, was they saw that David was a brother. I couldn't capture in this point how I really wanted to capture it, but they come and say to David, you are a part of us. You're the flesh and the blood of us. We know that we need a king that's a part of us, not some distant king, but we need someone that knows us and is a part of us. You see, they realized, they came to their senses and said, if we put anyone else in place that doesn't really know us and doesn't really trust us and believe in us and protect us, then it's probably going to go back the way it was. They understood they needed a king that was part of their body. That had experienced what they had experienced, that had gone through what they had gone through. The first thing that we must come to is this place of that there is a greater David that we are a part of. Let me say that again. We must come to a place that there's a greater David. David is pointing us to the greater king. 
But the beauty is this about King Jesus is he's not some distant, far-off king that rules and reigns. It says in God's word, we are part of his body. We are his brother. That is very familiar past words, that we are not just some God over here and us over here, some sovereign king here and us over here, where the king is just barking out orders to the peasants, and the peasants must do what the king says. No, no, he and you and I are part of the body of Christ. It says this in Corinthians, he's the head, we are the body. We're a part of him, not far off from him which will change everything that we do in our lives. If we really come to believe that God is not just the king, he's not just this man overseeing us, but we're a part of his body, it will change everything we do. Paul says it this way, if you would believe that you are a part of the body, you would never bring yourself to a prostitute because then you know you're bringing yourself and the body of Christ with you to a prostitute. You see, if we really believe that we are a part of the body of Christ, our sexual immorality would decrease. Our wickedness would decrease. Our evil would decrease because we have a bigger picture that, man, I'm part of something way bigger than myself. You see, that's what happened with these people. They finally woke up and said, man, wait, we can't operate on our own. We need someone that's a part of us, that will walk with us. And so I ask this question to you and to myself as a way of application with this first point this morning. Have you come to believe that you're part of a body much bigger than yourself where Christ is the head and the king? Because when you and I do that, our lives will be lived out differently than you and I will realize, man, every decision and choice that I might might make and my life doesn't affect me but it affects everyone that I'm attached to. Pals Chapel, I would beg you as the church, every decision you make affects everybody in this building, in this congregation. There is no secret hidden sin that does not affect every member of the body. I think even of this very moment. Th- last week I got to hold little Ruby, but as I was studying this passage, I began to think of myself like every decision I make is going to affect this young child in some way, and she's not even mine. But she's a part of us. And that's what the people of God finally understood. The second one is this. They not only recognize David as a brother or part of their body, they also recognize David as a savior. Read with me in verse 2. In time past when Saul was king over us, it was who? You, David, that what? Saved us, is what they say. They came to this place of Man, when we look back at our lives and we look back at this king that we, we had placed in and over us, it was not King Saul that ever delivered us from any battle, but yet, yet, yo, you, the teenage boy, delivered us from the Philistine Goliath. 
Wait, it was you that delivered us from the Philistines after we were attacked. It was you that did this, David. You are our Savior. And they finally came to this place of, wait, the one that we thought would conquer all of the world around us didn't do anything for us. King Saul did nothing for the nation of Israel but lead them to disaster. And yet they came to their senses and said, wait, 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 wait. We've got a Savior who led us to great victories over all of our enemies. Yet you see, we have one that's greater than King David. His name is King Jesus, who is our Savior. You see, when we come to our senses and we really believe that, wait, we not only have a brother that we're attached to a body, but we have a Savior. And that Savior, it says in God's word clearly that every victory has already been won for us. We are free because of King Jesus in our lives. But you see, it had to come to a place for the Israelites, just like it comes to you and I. We must wake up and then we must submit to his kingship and lordship see it's through submission that these men and these women in this text realize wait if he did it then he'll do it now but we must submit to him as our king and savior and our lord i just wonder how often church and this may not go over very well when i say this But just like these people needed more than a savior, they needed a king. So do we. Jesus cannot just be your savior. He also must be your Lord. We must submit to him. That's the way that you'll see victory throughout the rest of David's life was because a group of men saw him as savior but submitted to him as Lord of their lives. I think so often we, the church, give cheap grace and a cheap salvation. Jesus cannot just be your Savior. He must be Lord of your life. No amens to that one today. So I will say it this way again. Our application as David is the Savior, we have a greater David, King Jesus who has won every victory in your life already. There's nothing that you cannot overcome. No sin, no addiction, no anything that holds you back from pursuing Christ with all of your heart. Why? Because the victory has already been won because we have a great Lord and Savior named King Jesus. And that's who we see in the text. And I love this last thing, that they finally came to their sins. It's not just that they were a part of something, not that they just had a Savior, but look at what they then say. It says, you let us out and brought us out with great victory. And the Lord said to you, the people, this is the elders of Israel said, this is what we know to be true from the Lord about you, David. You shall be, and he lists three things. You shall be 
the shepherd of my people, and you shall be the prince over all of Israel. The next thing that we see is that David, as the shepherd, I love the word shepherd. That word to me means this caretaker and this caregiver. Remember where David learned how to be a shepherd was all the way back as a teenage boy sitting in the pasture. A shepherd has to be both tender and firm. Caring and rebuking. And they finally saw that God had placed a shepherd in their midst to both lead them and guide them and discipline them and correct them. That is a great shepherd. But you see, David is just a picture of the greater shepherd. David says to us in uh, Psalm chapter 23, the Lord is what my shepherd. You see, David himself knew that he wasn't the greatest shepherd. He was just a shepherd, but there was a great shepherd who was going to lead the flock. And he was going to discipline us, and he was going to rebuke us, and he was going to challenge us, but he was going to love us tenderly and softly and kindly. But he also knew this about the great shepherd. That there would be a time where the great shepherd would have to lay down his life for his sheep. And David knew that to be true in the text. That David knew that there was a King Jesus that was going to come and lay down his life for those that didn't want a king and a shepherd. But Jesus did that. Romans tells us that. Why we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. You see, this whole story about David being a king, so often we come to this passage and look, man, how, how is it that God's going to use me as king, as King David? No, 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 no. No, no. You and I are the elders that finally came to our senses. And when we come to our senses, Powell's Chapel, we must come to our senses and say, we are connected to a body much larger than ourselves. We have a savior of the world that has claimed victory over all things and he will shepherd and lead us in all the pastures. And I just wonder, do we believe that we have a greater king than King David? Do we believe that we're part of a body much bigger than ourselves and that everything that we do affects everyone around us? Every secret, hidden sin will affect this body. Next, do you believe that you have a shepherd that has laid down his life to become your savior? He died for you. You see, the people, Israel knew they needed a king, but they also needed a savior. And last, do we believe in our shepherd? And so my challenge to us this morning in closing is this. Have you come to your senses? Turn with me to Luke chapter 15.
I want to read verses 17 through 24. But when he had come to himself, this is the prodigal son, when he had come to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as a hired servant. And he arose and he came to his father. That's the sign of repentance. So what has to happen first is when you come to your senses, you must turn in repentance. But now look where he goes as he turns in repentance. He doesn't go to try to fix himself up. He doesn't go to try to clean himself up. He just simply turns and repents, and he says this. And I'll say to my father, I'll rise, and I'll come to my father. And he came to his father. Catch verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him. You see, when we rise and come to our sentence and come to repentance, we turn and run home. There's someone that's waiting for us and has been waiting for us forever, and he searches for us. This is what the passage tells us, that the prodigal son is more about the gracious father than anything. That, that God himself, through this father, is overlooking, waiting for your return so he can have compassion and love you and embrace you and forgive you and restore you. This is why he was still a long way off. The father felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I love the interruption from the father. But the father said to the servants, oh, don't listen to him. Bring quickly, quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put the ring on his hand and the shoes on his feet and bring a fattened calf and let us eat and celebrate for this. Get this. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he was found and they began to celebrate. You see, if you don't know Christ as your Savior and your King, you are lost as lost can be. And my prayer and my hope for you is that you will come to your senses to say, man, my life and what I'm doing in my life is falling apart. And that you'd wake up to that. And then you'd realize that there is a God, there is a Father who is longing for your return. And you must repent and run to Him. And when you run to Him, He's waiting with open arms to embrace you and restore you. And show you that, no, no, you're not a servant, but you are a son. And He forgives. And then He celebrates. Is that true in your life this morning? Have you come to your senses to realize you're not the king of the world, but there's a king and a savior who's waiting for your return. Let us pray.